Wow. <laughs> Blinded by the light. If any of you have not had the joy of being up here, you should just try it so that you feel our pain. Um, Dan told me I couldn't do any disclaimers this morning, and so I'm going to try not to, but this one's going to sound like one. But in fact, it isn't because it's actually a good thing. Um, I tend to be a long-range planner. I have a 10-year plan in my mind at all times, which is subject to change by moment. Um, But I tend to write my sermons way early, and I reach out to the worship leader way early, and all of this stuff. And the reason this is not a disclaimer is because it's actually a really cool thing. So as I speak today, I want you to bear this in mind. I thought the worship team leader this week was Rachel. The reason I thought that was because Rachel contacted me and asked me what I was going to speak on. And um, so I told her. And so, you know, we coordinated the sermon with the words of the, the lyrics of the songs so that it would all be seamless and perfect. And imagine my surprise when I walked in this morning and found out, oh, it's actually Kathy this morning and Rachel is next week because she apparently is also a long-range planner. (laughs) So um, I thought, wow, I wonder if the words of the songs are going to have anything to do with what I speak about at all. Well, I'll let you make that decision, but, you know, God's bigger than we are. And... uh, (laughs) If I had if I had handpicked songs for this morning for this sermon, I couldn't have done a better job than God seemed to have done by impressing them on Kathy. So apparently I and my long-range planning am not needed at all, um, <laughs> which is also very relevant. The other thing that gives me pause is the Kleenex box. It's never been here before. This is not what I think of as an emotional sermon, but because I am now of the mind thinking that God knows better than I do, I'm going to leave it here. And um, I who do not cry may be a blubbering idiot by the end of this. So anyway, here we are. Dan, was that a disclaimer? I don't think it was, was it? No. Okay. Um, So here we are towards the end of our series on the Trinity, and we've looked at the Trinity, uh, the history of it, and we've looked at it through theology, through its creeds, how dualism poisons our faith, and how the core of Christianity is relationship. We're getting close to landing the Trinitarian plane, if you were. And this week is not going to be tremendously theological. It's not going to be heavily scriptural-based, although there's the thread all the way through if you look for it. It's going to be a little bit practical. Um, That's more my wheelhouse. I'm not the historian. So um, this week I want to talk about what it might look like to live in the reality of our three-in-one God. And that is no more evident than in our interactions with God, which I'm going to call prayer, for lack of a better term. But in order to do that, I first need to illustrate how very far we've come from that understanding. And to do that, I'm going to bounce all over the place throughout the centuries and centuries and centuries of history, recorded and otherwise. So I'm kind of diving into historical stuff, which I don't normally do. So, I don't know if any of you are old enough to know who this guy is. If you do, you do still know how to write checks. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, This is Sherman and Mr. Peabody. And if you don't know, 
they have this way back machine. It's a time machine, as it were. And they were able to go back to times in history and learn more about them. This was a great cartoon. And for those of you who are too young to see, and I see you guys in the back there, um, I'm sorry for you. Uh, but then you've got Wayne's World, so that's something. And for those of you who are too young for that, <laughs> which I also see you in the back, um, you'll think of something. But I digress. So let's set the Wayback Machine to somewhere around 1776. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth and separate the equal, separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and, the, and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. Hopefully you recognize that. If you were tortured in school by an overzealous civics or history teacher, you probably had to memorize that. I did, but it's been a while. It was penned by our founding fathers, no doubt with input from the founding mothers. These words became the genesis for what we now know of as the United States and that the Declaration of Independence stated in no uncertain terms that we were no longer going to be under the thumb of or subject to England and their oppressive taxation rules and regulations. We wanted to do things our way. In this particular case, the separation was documented quite formally and was spelled out with great specificity, it's hard to say, and was duly signed by representative parties of the citizens of the emerging nation. But let's move back a little farther in our way back machine. Let's go back to Genesis 1 to 3. And I tried so hard to find a really good picture of the Garden Eden, but most of them have these really Nordic-looking Adam and Eve guys in them. And I have a real problem with that, so I decided just to go for the landscape. So pretend this is it. Here in the Garden of Eden, we've got three essential protagonists and one antagonist. Fodder for any good story. We have God, we have Adam, and we have Eve. Then we have the antagonist, personified as a serpent. God, Adam, and Eve have a close and loving relationship where Adam and Eve live in complete community and independence with God. God gives them some responsibilities, bountiful resources, and some guidelines meant to ensure an uninterrupted and unimpeded relationship with God. Now, let me say that again. The purpose of the rules were to ensure uninterrupted and unimpeded relationship with God. Enter the antagonist who hisses in Eve's and Adam's ears. Is this how you really want to live? Do you want to be dependent on God and have to follow all those rules? Is that really what you want? Or would you rather have your own identity and some, some say in your destiny? Wouldn't you rather call the shots for your own life? Don't you want to have a say in things? Don't you want to decide what is good? Well, Adam and Eve think about this for not nearly long enough. And they say, heck yeah, we want to captain our own ship. 
if you'll forgive the anachronism, because I know that ships didn't exist back then. But, you know, you get the idea. So they take the first step, and they break the one rule that they've been given. And man, that apple tasted good, at least until the reality of the bitterness that was that fruit was revealed to them. They thought it was good. They thought it was very good, except that it wasn't. Suddenly, their eyes were opened, and they realized that they did indeed have the ability to decide independently if God was good and what was good and what was not, what rules they would follow and which ones they would ignore. And the ability to captain their own metaphorical ships without the insight of the ramifications of the course that they had just set for themselves. And they were terrified. Terrified at their new vulnerability. Terrified of God, who no longer seemed so tame and approachable. They were terrified of a future that they could not begin to conceive of in terms of where they would go, what they would do, how they would live, how they would survive, how they would relate with one another. In short, their newly opened eyes beheld a future in which they were pretty much screwed. Biblical term. Straight out of... <laughs> I, I do a lot out of the revised Downing Standard Version. Um, <laughs> you'll get to know that. So when in the course of human events... It seems like a good idea for people to amend the bonds which have connected them with God and to grasp for themselves the powers previously held only by God and assume a separate and equal station to God. Well, a complete mess ensues. And that is our heritage. It became kind of part of our DNA. It's part of our operating system a cracked foundation upon which everything else rests. It permeates our understanding of ourselves, our nature, our relationship with one another, our values, how we instruct our kids, and most tragically and importantly, our relationship with God. Let's take music for instance. Let's look at two sets of lyrics. The one on the left and now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that is full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more, I did it my way. Okay? The other side. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Just take a moment and look at those two sets of lyrics. And then take a moment to consider your own life. Which one lives, looks more the way you live? If you're honest, I bet you do it Frank's way, not Jesus' way. Why would I say that? because I suspect you're a lot like me. And as embarrassing as it is to admit, unchecked, I would do things my way. Why? Because my way, in my mind, benefits me. My way has my interests at heart. 
my way has something that I can control. Or so I fool myself into believing. And demonstrating a colossal lack of faith in understanding, in my heart of hearts, I doubt that God's ways benefit me, that God has my best interests at heart, and that God is able to control this crazy world in which I live. My name is Ginny Downing. I'm one of your pastors, and sometimes I doubt a lot. Okay, most of the time. So what does this have to do with the Trinity, you ask? Hang on, I'll get there. But first, but first, let's take a look at this. I found it on the internet. And once we did a panel, um, (laughs) which I'm still recovering from, um, with all the teachers answering your questions and some others, and I admit that I, I admitted right there in front of all of you all that I do some of my research on Google. And I came under quite a lot of condemnation, I have to say. Um, But I admit to you right now, I still do that. And sometimes, like today, I'm glad I did. Because I found something really useful. Really wrong, but really useful. (laughs) So on Pinterest, I found a heavenly organizational chart. And it very helpfully breaks down the roles of each of the three persons of the Trinity. So we have God the Father, who's creator, holy, almighty, all-knowing, everlasting. We have God the Son, who's the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior, Emmanuel. And we have God the Holy Spirit, who is the advocate, the guide, the helper, the counselor, and the paraclete. All those are sort of true, if you could put them in the same box. Um, because before you get up and leave, I, I don't agree with their concept of pigeonholing God. And honestly, I don't agree with any attempt to figure out or pigeonhole God because that would be analogous to an amoeba trying to figure out string theory. As it has been said, if I could figure out God, why would I need him? So... That type of understanding, the segmenting of the elements of the Trinity, that misunderstanding of God represented on the org chart, plants God right within our worldview, though, doesn't it? And we tend to think of God as a corporate entity. So I got to thinking, you know, in my deranged little way, corporate entities must have offices. And so I found this on the Internet, a nice three-pronged, Office building. So, you know, down at the bottom in the center, you've got God the Father's offices. And then to his right would be Jesus's, and to the left would be the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a lobby and, you know, a reception area. I assume that's where St. Peter is, you know, the gatekeeper. <laughs> and then you'll see there's a mail room, and I think that's where all your prayers probably go yeah. to get sorted, right? Wrong. (laughs) So, this is just silliness. And that brings up another fallacy in thinking, how we approach talking or relating to God. We all know Jesus had skin on and can likely relate to our humanity. So, you know, anything that has to do with temporal stuff, like, you know, stuff having to do with the world we live in, we would take that to Jesus because he experienced it so he would understand it. Jesus also healed. So any health-related things, those would go in Jesus' inbox. 
And global crisis things, well, those go straight to the Father because, you know, they're sort of global in thinking. And, um, you know, requests for guidance, those go to the Holy Spirit, who is our counselor and our guider and all of that. It's so neat and tidy. But it's completely and utterly false because God is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elonehu Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, one. God, the Trinitarian God, the fullness of the Godhead, God in three persons is one. Get it? No separate offices, no separate job descriptions, one. And when you pray, they can all hear you. In fact, Scripture tells us that your prayer is heard before it is formed on your tongue. Yeah, I said it. All the prayers that we so carefully sanitize and edit and plunk in Jesus' name, amen, at the end, so God has to do it. (laughs) God heard them all before that sanitizing process happened. And as none of us have been smitten or turned into a pillar of salt yet, I have to surmise that those unsanitized, truthful, raw prayers are okay with God. Why? Because he loves us. He loves who? The raw, unedited me. The me before I try to make myself look good enough to come into his presence. But let's move on. So again, we've looked at the Trinity from many sides. Um, We've looked at carefully fashioned creeds and even a video of St. Patrick and his minions trying to describe the Trinity. But now we're going to go in a bit of a different direction. Back in the day, by which I mean the Dark Ages, before the Internet, when TVs and everything else were pretty much black and white, there was a common phrase in Westerns of which I was a big fan because they had horses. Anyway, there would be a scene of an evil banker plotting with his henchmen on how to cheat the poor townsfolk and the outlying ranchers out of their land and their life savings. And then there would be a graphic, which you see above, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And then there would be a bucolic graphic or a bucolic scene that introduces the hero, a retired gunslinger who is just trying to live happily on a plot of land with his lovely wife, a child or two, a dog, and, of course, his trusty cayuse, which, if you went to the speakeasy, you know is a horse. (laughs) And all our former gunslinger wants to do is live a life of contentment and peace, far from the stresses and dangers of his former gunslinging life. Little does he know as he sits there chewing on a stalk of prairie grass that he is about to be drawn into using his pistol to save his town from the evil banker and his cohorts. But that's a completely another story. So forget all that. Just meanwhile, back at the ranch. Point being, while things are going on in town, back on the range, there were people, humble people, just trying to live their lives. And that's exactly what I want to talk about this morning. Dial the way back machine to the 300s when Constantine was seizing control of the Roman Empire and setting it up as an ersatz Christian empire, back when church fathers and mothers were hashing out the Nicene Creed, there was something else happening far to the north. 
in what would someday be the British Isles. The Celts had been resident in the British Isles for many centuries prior to the invasion of Emperor Claudius's forces in AD 43. The impression we get about the Celts is primarily a function of Roman spin, and that is that they were warlike and, you know, they ate their children and such things. Um, some of these things may have been true, some of them may not, I don't know. But we're going to talk about their more admirable qualities. Most Celts in Britain lived in roundhouses, either clustered together in small farms or enclosed in settlements or within hill forts. With their thatched roofs in round shapes and wattle and daub walls, roundhouses offered substantial family accommodation and are usually found together with timber granaries, animal pens, and work sheds. They were self-enclosed um, neighborhoods, basically. Farming was the main source of food and production. Celtic families or clans belonged to larger tribes, each led by an elite to whom the farmers and food producers pledged allegiance. These clans were tight-knit, which was necessary for protection, identity, and survival. The thing I want you to get from that is they were dependent on each other. Uh, there was no um, living like we do in a townhouse where we know very few of our neighbors and those that we do know, it's mostly, hi, how are you doing, isn't the weather lovely? We don't depend on them for survival. But back in the Celtic age, they did. The Celtic religion, pre-Christianity, was earth-centered. Prayer from the Celts showed a deeply religious way of being, with prayer being a part of everything they did. There were prayers for waking up, for milking cows, for sweeping the hearth, for harvesting, for baking, for the end of the day, and for protection at night. And if you, if you are like me and you like to geek out on poetry, there is a really cool book called um, Carmina Gadelica, um, which is Gaelic songs. Um, it's about that thick. And it has a lot of these old Celtic poems and prayers, which are really cool. And if you get it in Middle English, it's even cooler, but you won't be able to understand it, so don't. Anyway, the earliest certain historical evidence of Christianity among the Celts is found in writings of such early Christian fathers as Tertullian and Origen in the first years of the 3rd century, which should ring a bell right about the time of um, the guy whose name starts with C. Thanks, that guy. <laughs> Funny how things just go whoop, out of the brain when you're up here. Anyway, um, although the first century Christian communities probably were established sometime earlier. So this is the same time, same time period that the Nicene Creed is being hammered out or beginning to be hammered out. The Celtic Christians, however, held a different understanding of life than those farther south. Remember, in Rome, the Roman Empire, peace depended on Pax Romana, right? As long as Rome was happy and strong, everybody was happy and strong, as long as you lived the way the Romans said. Um, and even though Christians in that area were being persecuted up until the time of Constantine, the worldview of empire was pervasive. The Celts, on the other hand, didn't rely on, el on empire. They relied on the strength of the community within the clans. 
the notion of living independently from one another was absurd. For the Celts, what was good for the community was good for the individual. We've kind of lost that. The Celts also differed from those in the Roman Empire in another way. The Celts understood that they were unified with creation, that all was sacred. There are Celtic prayers of thanksgiving for an animal who would become their dinner, for its life, for its sacrifice, for its being the source of, of nourishment. And they would, they would approach it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the earth and the elements, for the rain, for the sun, for light and dark that worked together to produce plants and crops that they needed to survive. So when various Christian ministries or missionaries such as Origen, Palladius, and Patrick arrived on the scene throughout the early 100s to 400s, they were wise enough to see the beauty that was already pervasive in the Celtic culture. So instead of following the ways of so many Christian ministry, missionaries, instead of forcing the recipients of the good news to jettison everything in their culture, these wise folks simply pointed an already devout Celtic society toward the one God that was overall and in all that they were already doing in terms of their worship. Well, the Celts quickly embraced this. And unencumbered by the dualistic thinking that plagues most sophisticated societies, and certainly ours, this one God and three persons represented to them a perfect whole into which they were invited. Their early artifacts illustrate this understanding, and I've got just one, of, um, one picture of this. Look how everything is interwoven, and look how the, um, the element of three is displayed all over within the Celtic knot, and it's all woven into one. The circle image signifies belonging and inclusion and being invited in. For the Celts then, God was in all and permeated all of life. And when they spoke to God, which they did regularly, their prayers illustrated an understanding of how completely and utterly dependent they were upon God to protect them, sustain them, nourish them, for food, for life, for fertility, for peace, for harmony, for everything they needed for sustenance, up to the very air they breathed, the water that was required for life. In fact, for them, life outside of God was unthinkable. And their prayers also reflected something else. There was no distinct, segmented, corporate, office-type God for the Celts. In fact, so utter was their dependence on God that their prayers encompassed the entirety of the triune Godhead. Here are a few examples. Throughout the dark hours of this night, protect and surround us, Father, Son, and Spirit three. Forgive the ill that we have done. Forgive the pride that we have shown. Forgive the words that have caused harm that we might sleep peaceably and rise refreshed to do your will. Through the dark hours of this night, protect us and surround us, Father, Son, Spirit, Three. Do you see the dependence? Do you see how they incorporated their prayer 
the entire Trinitarian idea. Here's another. My walk this day with God, my walk this day with Christ, my walk this day with Spirit, the threefold, all kindly, my shielding this day from ill, my shielding this day from harm, both my soul and my body, be by Father, by Son, by Holy Spirit, be the Father shielding me, be the Son shielding me, be the Spirit shielding me as three and as one. Another one. My fortress, the sacred three, my fortress be encircling me. Come and be round my hearth and my home. And the last one. We light a light in the name of the maker who lit the world and breathed the breath of life for us. We light a light in the name of the sun who saved the world and stretches out his hand to us. We light a light in the name of the Spirit who encompasses the world and blesses our souls with yearning. We light three lights for the trinity of love, God above us, God beside us, God beneath us, the beginning, the end, everlasting, one. Now, for those of you who are historians, no doubt you could speak of less praiseworthy elements of Celts and Celtic society because, you know, they did do the human sacrifice thing. Um, like ours, they had good points and they had bad points. But for today, let's just look at what was deep and rich and good about their society because we can learn from that. And see if there's some elements that we are missing or lacking in our lives, in our society our religious traditions, and in our own personal faith. For instance, what would happen if we were to trade in our independence, which we so fiercely hang on to, for dependence upon God? Now, in fact, this shouldn't be too much of a stretch because our independence from God is a bit of an illusion. Independence is actually the state we live in, whether we believe it or recognize it or not. What if we were to trade in our independence from one another to a greater sense of community and reliance upon one another? So I'm going to give you a couple examples. Friday, I was supposed to bring um, art contemplation sheets up to the church before the play. My schedule exploded and it was going to be very difficult for me to do that. For one thing, my sermon was unfinished. You can tell that because I've got this story in it before it ended. <laughs> for another, work had exploded and my normal responsibilities at work had pretty much tripled. Ben was driving up to Ventura and he says, Oh, I'll take him up there for you. And I said, Oh, thank goodness. But as people do, he forgot. So I figured I would just have to drive up to Ventura and do it myself. And I don't, didn't know exactly when that was going to happen, but, you know, maybe midnight. You know, how hard can it be? Enter Christina Fabro, who was in Thousand Oaks on her way to Ventura. And she graciously offered to pick them up and deliver them for me. Do you know what my first inclination was in responding to her offer? Oh, no, don't worry about it. I've got it. Seriously. 
Sure, no problem. I'll just set my alarm clock to get up at midnight, which is the only time I have to breathe between now and Saturday when they have to be there. No problem at all. Well, apparently it was so important to me to not need anything that I was willing to go way beyond what I was actually capable of doing in order to prove that to myself. How stupid is that? Fortunately, I was in the middle of writing this sermon, and some of the words penetrated my thick skull, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll just say yes to Christina. And so not only did she come and pick it up, she gave me a hug too, and that was good, because I really needed that. So instead of getting a half-baked sermon, I was able to finish it, and you get the whole enchilada. Well, here's another example, and I may have shared this before, but I think it's a cautionary tale worth living or listening to again. I had a friend named Keith. He's very successful. Um, he's a corporate executive. He had a lovely family, pillar of a large church in Pasadena, luxurious home, fancy cars, vacation home on the beach. And he was nice, too, which was kind of cool. The icing on the cake. Uh, very generous um, with his time, with his resources. He was pretty much aware of his success. And honestly, and I think he would tell you this, he was pretty proud of himself. And there was an awful lot of reason that he should be. But one day he was praying. He was a man of prayer, still is. And his prayer came alarmingly close, he said, to the rich guy's prayer in scripture. You know the one, thank you God that I'm not like the poor schmuck over there. Well, my friend's prayer wasn't quite that bad. But it was such that God felt it necessary to make just the slightest of correction to him. And Keith got the impression of God saying to him, yeah, you're pretty awesome, all right. In fact, you're incredible. But just wondering, with all the things that you can do, that you have done, that you will do, have you ever made a day? Just one day. I've made gazillions of them. So how about it? Want to try And my friend suddenly realized that even in his success, wealth, and power, he was completely and utterly unconditionally dependent, even to the point of his next breath, upon God. For him, it was a life-defining moment. The trajectory of his life changed. All of his strengths still continued. Still had a nice house, still had nice cars, still had a great family, still had all these things. But his focus and his values changed. If we were to embrace two things this morning, and I hope you'll at least consider it. First, embrace our utter dependence on God. And second, our dependence on one another. If we could do those two things, I bet you our world would be turned upside down. And I think we all agree that right now what we think of is a right-side-up world isn't right-side-up at all. Dependence is countercultural, But it's how things were designed to be. If you think of it, even in science, the way things are held together, it's de- they're dependent on one another. Even inhaling and exhaling, we inhale the oxygen that the trees make and we exhale the the carbon dioxide that they need. 
We are designed to live in dependency. Can we reclaim this? Can we at least try? Can we maybe try to be dependent on one another? I think most of us are pretty generous with our time, with our resources and such. But I think most of us are more like me. We're a little reluctant to be dependent on each other. I would rather give than receive. Because to receive makes me vulnerable and admit that I don't have it all together. But you know what? I don't. Why not just be honest about it? Well, I'd like to end with a Celtic prayer. And this one's from this century. uh, Written by a man who was at one point... um, Ben, what was he? (laughs) Sorry. The warden of a monastery, an abbey in uh, on Iona, which is a little tiny um, pilgrimage place in Scotland that we've been to, and we're going back, and I can't wait. Um, so this man's name is John Philip Newell, and he happens to be the brother-in-law of the man named Keith that I told you about, which we found out just a couple years ago. What a random thing. But it showed how much Keith had changed. Anyway, so it seems right that I would end this message quoting one of his prayers. I'd like you to close your eyes, if you will, and listen to the words as I pray them over us. In the infinity of night skies, in the free flashing of lightning, in the whirling element winds, you are God. In the impenetrable mists of dark clouds, in the wild gusts of lashing rain, in the ageless rocks of the sea, you are God. I bless you. You are in all things, but contained by no thing. You are the life of all life, and beyond every name, you are God. And in the eternal mystery, I praise you. It's written by John Philip Newell. And if you ever have a chance to read his books, they're wonderful. They changed the trajectory of my own theology. Um, Worship team, you can come up if you want. I really want to challenge you to consider embracing dependence. It's scary. It's countercultural. It's weird. But it's truth. I can't live without you. I cannot continue my own walk in faith without you. I cannot breathe. I cannot stand. I cannot think. I cannot do anything without God. And the spark of God that is in you and the spark of God in me are stronger together than we are apart. But our strength, individually, communally, lies wholly within a God who loves us.